1: Really, how do you look at community? That's the starting point.
2: In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Scrooge, needing a job done, simply calls over the closest young lad and employs him on the spot. That story was set in the 1840s in England, and yet, somehow, 150 years later in Brooklyn, New York, something remarkably similar happened, kicking off one of the most compelling founder stories we've had on this show. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Moshe Gubin, CEO and Chairman at Optimum Bank and CEO of Strawberry Fields, welcome to the show. Thank you. Moshe, you've got one of those wonderful, almost made for the movies, career stories. So, before we get into the meat of our discussion today, what are the foundations of your career?
1: I grew up in a really, really poor house in Queens, New York. I'm really, really proud of you know where I come from. Uh, recently, my mother passed, and and so now you know we're trying to do good in their memory—my mother, my father. But not a wealthy family. In the projects of New York, worked my way literally through elementary school and through high school. In high school, I caught a break. I was on my way to buy a Slurpee, uh, like maybe 12, at 12 years old. And a guy dropped something on the street. And I went and picked it up for him and put it on the back of a truck. And they're like, hey, why don't you help us load this truck? I'm like, sure. I got nothing going on. <laughs> and I just lo- loaded a truck with them. And then like an hour later, they said, well, hey, kid, why don't you come deliver the truck with us? I'm like, sure. you, <laughs> This is time where parents didn't worry about their kids. Yeah. It was well, relatively safe. <laughs> You know, I'm a 12-year-old getting into a truck with, with an African-American person and, you know, and a big Jewish guy. And we get into a truck. We drove to Westchester, unloaded the truck. I get back four hours later, and the guy says, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, I don't have school tomorrow. He goes, well, be here at 4 o'clock in the morning, and you can work. <laughs> and I worked every minute of my life through high school and uh, graduated high school at 16, got my first college degree at 18, and uh, got married at 20. I worked the day of my wedding for the catering business. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm a mule. Till today, I'm a mule. I'm a mule. Anyone who knows me, you know, I'm, I, I'm a workhorse. And got my accounting degree, which is my second degree, at 21. My wife, one day, I, I had left the house on a Saturday night to go cater a 1,000-person wedding at the New York Hilton. I worked all the way till Monday morning, where I come into the house at 5 o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, I literally drop, in, drop into a hot shower. And as I'm going into the shower, I'm going into the bathroom, my wife is like, and she's like, where have you been? And I'm like, where have I been? I'm working so that we can make a little living and, you know, have a good life. Yeah, but we're newly married and you leave me and whatever. I'm like, what do you want me to do? And she says, well, you have an accounting degree. Why don't you go work as an accountant? And I said, oh, that's a that's a, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> and, so, and so literally the next week, we're talking circa 1997. And literally the next week, you know, I, I took my resume and I mail merged my resume and sent off my resume to a thousand places. I got three job interviews, and at three job interviews, I was offered three jobs. And I took the job that was working as a bookkeeper at a nursing home. That's my humble beginning. And then I started uh, working as a payroll and accounts payable bookkeeper. I worked my way up through the organization. From accounts payable, payroll, I went to receivables. From receivables, I went to collections. Then I went to assistant controller. Then I became controller. Then I ran a home. Then I ran two homes. And brings us to 2001. My wife gives birth to triplets. And she <laughs> says to me we got to get out of New York. My, my parents are in the Midwest and I really want their help to raise these kids. And so we moved to South Bend, Indiana and we got to South Bend, Indiana and uh, I start as a director of budgeting for a nursing home chain. And I'm running 17 nursing homes for them, running around, talking to them, helping them become profitable. And uh, fast forward two years, I get an opportunity to buy something. I bought my first nursing home. Really the rest is history because from there, we just kept growing and buying and buying and buying. And today, literally almost 20 years later, my 20-year anniversary with my partner is October 31st, 2023. will be 20 years partners with a good friend of mine. His name is Michael Blisco. And we've accumulated now over a billion one 000, 000, 000 in real estate. We have 110 nursing homes. Um, our company is publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Chairman and the CEO called Strawberry Fields. Stock symbols STRW. And uh, somewhere along the way, while working my way towards becoming publicly traded on the healthcare REIT side, I felt that I needed board experience. And an opportunity came along with a nursing home that was for sale. That the owner, that was the seller, was the chairman of a bank in Florida. He roped me into joining the board, and I was right away the SEC financial expert and the and, and the Nasdaq financial expert. They considered me a sophisticated financial expert, whatever that is.
2: It's a big move to go to to the bank. So what was the inspiration there? Was it purely the opportunity to get the board experience or had you had an interest in banking before then?
1: What I like about banking in general thought is, you know, you're part of someone else's success story. What I would say is that what was always the positive and the negative is that, you know, the banker, you know, helps you get to where you're going. And then you surpass him because you become successful, and I always felt that does you know it's it's bittersweet, but on the positive side of the of the conversation, I like to be that footnote in someone's story. Somebody had to take a chance on them, you know and and yeah. I'm not a transactional guy. Everybody in my life is still part of my life from the beginning till now. I don't have any enemies that I know about anyway I, I wanted to be part of that story, and I took the opportunity at that time because of the need to get that board experience so that it'll build up a resume for when eventually I go and do a roadshow to the public market to raise equity for an issuance.
2: I want to pick up on that a bit because Optimum Bank, at least as it is today, embeds itself very much in the community. It's all about being a community bank. What does that mean to you?
1: You know, the starting point, first of all, is really how do you look at community? I look at my network and my whole world if you want to call it my own personal ecosystem as my community so that's the starting point and then and then to a little subset of that is i happen to be an orthodox jew and as an orthodox jew i mean there's a total of five million total orthodox jews in the whole world so from that perspective and there's a total of 15 million jews completely people think we're billions of people we're only 15 million total people so in, in a sense it's a very small community there and then you have the just the business point of view of we're in south florida And and you want to be the local community bank. So I look at it like this in all of those areas. I play a role not as an influencer, but as a resource to help get things accomplished that they want to get accomplished, that they have a hard time as a random relationship uh, somewhere else. So as an example, I take major pride in all the different synagogues. All I mean, I actually went to mosques and churches as well, but synagogues and schools and other religious institutions and the fact is reputationally they know me and it's good business by the way happens to be it's good business because at the end of the day if uh, you were worried that that building is going to be foreclosed on you're going to fundraise the money and you're going to be able to get the money to be able to pay your mortgage and and it's 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 similar to like a guy who has a taxi cab and that's his office and that's his business he's going to always make his payment on his taxi payment yeah he might not pay his mortgage he might not you know meet other obligations he has in his life but he's going to pay for that taxi The same way that people are going to support the church, support the school where their kids go and the like. And so, you know, I sit and listen both from a point of view of charity and from the banking side of it. And again, I become part of a small footnote somewhere. The fact that the school now has 850 kids because the community has grown. I know that I I had some small part in being able to get them to be able to take care of those 850 kids where if, if I wasn't involved, they would have gotten to 250 kids or 300 kids because they would have been maxed out. And actually, in practice at the actual bank, I actually do play a front role where I sit with them and then I help shepherd the deal through uh, as as chairman of loan committees. And look, I think it plays an important role in the geography where we are and specifically, you know, in the Orthodox Jewish world and, and a lot of the not-for-profit world. I was with one of my original lenders yesterday for lunch and his comment resonates with me. He said, you know, lending is an art and a science. Okay, now mind we we're talking really about global banking. So, You know, my bank does all the other stuff too, deposits and everything else. But from the talk about just simply on the lending side and the community bank role within lending, he says, you know, it's really a mix of art and science. And, you know, the lenders that are all science end up not getting deals done because, you know, there's always something wrong with the math somewhere, you know, and the guys that are all art end up with loans that are bad loans. So you got to kind of manage that balancing act between the two sides to it. And and as a community banker, with especially in, with my world, you know, the communities I'm serving, which a lot of it is also not necessarily local, but it's community as in it's the Jewish world of, you know, not-for-profits, you know, churches, mosques as well, where I have to apply more art than science saying, look, you guys have on a Saturday morning, let's say in a synagogue or a Sunday morning in a church, you know, you have 500 people coming here. I look at that as 500 giving units that are coming regularly to a candy store to buy candy. And so I need to analyze what they're donating, you know, year-over-year donations. And I basically turned it into a science off of the art so that I can meet their needs. Anyway, so
2: that's... Yeah, no, Ed, you've already talked to me a little bit about the philosophy there, and I, I can hear that coming through really nicely. What I'm interested in now is what that loan portfolio looks like from my understanding is primarily in the commercial real estate sort of space you've talked about, sort of non-profit commercial real estate space. What, what does that customer profile of yours look like? And I'm not very familiar myself with the commercial real estate side of lending. I've always done the consumer stuff. So maybe just a little bit of a primer for me of what makes that unique.
1: Yeah. Okay. So like today, through the June 30th numbers that I think we sent out yesterday, our loan portfolio has already gotten up to $518 million. Now, mind you, five years ago, we were at $88 million. So from 88 to 518 is a pretty good growth uh, trajectory.
2: Especially with a little COVID in the middle of that.
1: Yeah, no, totally. But I'll tell you, our out of our total portfolio, we probably got about $50 million of consumer lending in there. Outside of consumer lending, we, have, we created a, a lending program for accounts receivables, for mainly nursing home receivables that are Medicare, Medicaid receivables, because that's also the business I'm in on the other side. And by the way, keep in mind, I can't borrow from my bank. Rego doesn't allow me to be... So there's no, no hanky-panky, no affiliated transactions, nothing, okay? I mean, they don't even waive a wire fee for me because so just can't, just you can't do it. So we started you know, thinking, well, you know, in my world in Strawberry, I have tenants that need lines of credit. So why, let, why would we want them to go you know, outside of our world when we could, this is very easily done, we bring them into Optimum Bank, you know? It's sticky money. It brings in a whole bunch of deposits. And so we started doing that, and uh, that's growing nicely. We're getting close to about 30, 35 million in that portfolio. And once we hit about 50, I got to go back to the board and ask for permission to raise, uh, maybe do another 50 of that. That's the stuff that's not backed by real estate. And another uh, 400 million, $420 million. It's mainly multifamily. We have some retail. I mean, look, we're, we're out of that 400 million, I'd say we probably have 300 of it is true commercial real estate, strip malls hotels. We have some office, but I'll tell you, we we haven't had a bad loan in five or six years. The only bad debt that sits on our books is actually a gap snafu. Now, mind you, I'm a CPA, by the way. So uh, from gap accounting, so we have a line of business that's consumer lending driven and we buy loans from, let's say, Lending Club or Marlette or that kind of world that lend money to people. You know, small 20,000, 20, 25,000 small loans payable over three years, five years. We only buy like the high, like the better paper that's, you know, it's not like as risky. Yeah. And so it's built out that it's going to have delinquency ratios that are higher than, you know, commercial lending. And so in my world of accounting, that would be a cost of goods sold and would come off the top line, you know, and then you'd say you're netting out at, a you know, a 9% yield. Yeah. Now, with accounting, accounting is forcing us to put that all the way on the bottom under bad debt. Yeah. And so it shows if you look at our financials, we have a little bit of bad debt, but that bad debt is not real bad debt. We haven't had a bad loan in literally five, six years. And a lot of that has to do with the goodwill that's created and now we're lending. Usually when you do something nice for somebody, they have a very hard time to burn you in person. Yeah. I mean meaning meaning they'll avoid you. <laughs> but once you but once you're in front of that person who you lent a hundred bucks to it's very hard to them for them to say, screw you. I'm not giving you back your hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, they might not have the money, but they'll, but they'll, they'll they, they can't intentionally do bad to you. They know you did good by them. Yeah. And so our whole bank today, the system on how we do our business is so friendly. And, and let me just tell you, let me go, let me go, let me go back a step. When I invested in the bank 13 years ago, I thought, you know, this will be easy. I'm going to learn a new business and I'm going to go put my money right in the business and we're going to be good to go. And what I found out was that it's really not that simple. And the bank was not geared towards taking care of, I would, let's say, call me as like a wealth management customer. Okay. So right away we realized, you know what? We need to fix and replace all of the staff that feels as if they're doing the customer a favor. And we're going to replace them with people that understand that the customer is how we live. Without the customer, we die. Yeah. And that we're going to treat everybody with white glove service. And we're going to treat every customer as if they were Moshe Gubin being the customer. And so it took years. We brought in Tim Terry, who's my bank president, probably nine years ago at this point. And he basically replaced most of our staff with people that understand that our lifeline, we don't live without our customer being satisfied with us. I have on every business card that I give out, my cell phone number is on there. And people can find me on WhatsApp or text me, you know, all times of day. You know, I need help. I need this. I need that, and and we take care of them. Um, you know, and that's and that's a that's a philosophy that a lot of banks do not have.
2: Yeah, and let's talk about nuts and bolts for a minute. As you said, this is not about doing favors. You are evaluating the loans and deciding who to lend to and who not to. So, as I said earlier, I'm not familiar with how one does that in the commercial real estate space. I come from a world where it's kind of FICO score and a few things like that, and we're done. How are you managing that balance of Running an efficient process that involves the right amount of science, but also allowing an understanding of each unique business that's coming looking for uh, money from you.
1: You understand a couple of points is that number one, you recognize that there's a different job task of credit versus lending. And so we we have a constant civil war going on where the lender wants to produce and the credit guy wants to be protected. You know, you have to navigate all of that obviously with respect and, and friendliness. But a general rule of thumb that we start with is that, you know, assets don't pay mortgages. Cash flow does. From our point of view, the starting point is going to be the integrity of the person of who we're talking to. Um, and so a lot of that gets diffused where the lead comes in today. The leads are all coming in that they're hot leads. They're coming in from a new borrower that, that's friends with a current borrower, who came from another borrower, came from another borrower. And there's a, there's a direct lineage, if that's the right word, to to say, okay, we know who this guy is, we know who his friends are, we know where he lives. And then so to underwrite a deal, you know, typical underwriting requires, you know, the cash flow, like I said, but, you know, you really want to look for two out of three things or if you really can get three out of three things, which is, I think, you know, you need, you need the asset quality, right? You need the cash flow and you need the strength of the guarantor. Or the principle behind it so that you know that they're gonna back you know their debt. You know, that being said, everything has wiggle room. You know, if uh, if if you have a stronger guarantor, you know, the really the one thing you don't that doesn't really have the wiggle room is the cash flow. And I guess where the wiggle room exists in the cash flow is where you could look at global cash flow versus individual cash flow. So you came to me and said, I got this building, it's empty, it's not making any money, I wanna buy it and I wanna I want fifty percent L T V or sixty percent sixty percent L T V or seventy percent on TV rather. My point of view is, okay, well, who are you and how are you going to pay me back? (laughs) Right. And so, you know, if I understand you and I see the rest of your world and I know where your cash flow is being generated from, from my point of view, I'd lend on that all day long, uh, which a lot of banks wouldn't because it's not a cash flowing asset. But for me, the actual debtor or the guarantor debtor, you know, he has the ability to pay us because he's making Boku cash and his other, he could be a neurologist making, you know, a million dollars a year you know, at the hospital and he has the bright idea of investing in it. Yeah. And he just, and, but he doesn't know anything about it. And he's buying an empty building that he thinks is a good deal. I'll lend him. I mean, he's a neurologist, he's making money, you know, he has good credit, not that credit pays anything, but, but he checks out as far as who he is and where he lives and who, you know.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.
1: don't come to me for your first deal, like giving me the hardest, you know, loan to try to figure out for you. And you don't have to come to me with a vanilla deal either, you know, cream puff. But I mean, like come to me with something that makes sense. And then once you're in, you know, my purse strings are open because, you know, that goes a long way because you want to back up someone who backs you up by in general rule in life, right? You want to help the guy that helps you like you're a sergeant in arms. He's your guy. That guy, that guy did by you. He banks by you. And and, um, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. Like, I want to back him. I want to do for him.
2: But Moshe, I want to sort of come back to the results announcement that you had recently. As I said, very good results coming from Optimum Bank. But in your address, you also spoke about the strange times we are in the world. So from your point of view, as you look, I guess, at the bank itself, but also just more broadly at the trends that are out there, we've got interest rates that have been rising, You know, threats of inflation, threats of a, a recession. What are the trends or the the bits of uh, the measurements out there in the market that you're keeping an eye on? And what's kind of the things that you track as you look at the health of uh, the economy, the health of that commercial real estate space?
1: The biggest problem we have in a bank is, you know, in the case of erratic interest rates, because if you follow, you know, the five year, 10 year, you know, one year it's, it's every day of the week with different news or what, the, what the market thinks, you know, it could shoot up half a point, you know, every day, every day is that volatility. So, so the one thing that we did is we just changed our pricing to be, and, you know, three years ago, you'd come to me and say, I need a loan. I'd say, okay, I can give you five and a quarter, five year money. And, and then we'll reprice it after that at the treasury, one year treasury plus three and a quarter. And I could do that all day long. And I say, you know, I got to underwrite the deal. It has to get past my people and, you know, and I got you back. I know the story. I think you have a good story and we should be able to sell it. But today that story is great, but you have to, because of, you know, locking in the price. I can't give a fixed day one price. I have, I can give a fixed price, but it has to be locked in, you know, five days before closing so that I know that i am got to spread on my money. I yeah. can't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an interest-free, uh, loan society here. We're a bank that has to, we have shareholders that we have to make money for um, all the while doing it the right way. So from our point of view, we're relatively lucky compared to other other banks and, you know, the rest of the country, you know, we're in South Florida, you know, the customers we have being vetted the way they're being vetted and just the whole routine on what we're doing and where the, where, where our referrals come from. We, we have a way different situation than I guess a lot of other banks that are, you know, every, every lender is a cold call customer. that could take you all over the place for all types of assets and all different places that, the local economy is terrible. You know, you, you don't know that, right? That's that's one of the reasons why you'd want to, as a bank, and certainly in times like this, you'd want to not expand your footprint. You'd want to kind of look more towards, you know, we know the local, you know, real estate market where we are, and, you know, we're going to lend money to people that are good people buying. I mean, you could, you could lend money against a C property, right? But you got to know that neighborhood where you are, if that makes sense, that that's going to continue to be able to, you know, cash flow.
2: Yeah, because it's obviously been a time that's not been the best for small regional banks, at least if you're reading the newspaper headlines. But I'm guessing that again, that's a case of the headlines maybe picking some of the worst stories rather than the reality. It sounds like there still is very much uh, a position for small regional banks in the that U.S. Uh, ecosystem.
1: You know, we're a bank that's able to take care of the customer, and make them feel good about themselves. That being said, when when this last batch of stuff went you know went down, I realized. How it's way better. I mean, I knew beforehand, but but I really realized this how it's way better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> People said to us because I remember when I think Silicon Valley went out, like my phone was ringing like off the hook, yeah, like crazy off the hook. And the epiphany, like on the first phone call, is like, "What do you mean? We don't have any of these problems." And they go, "What do you mean <laughs> you don't have any problems?" I said, "Let me just tell you, we had a conversation about two years ago at the bank." And we were talking about buying, you know, T-bills, bonds for our portfolio. The policy was we needed 10% of our assets to be held in uh, bonds. And I'm sitting there as chairman of the, it's called ALCO. And my management's saying we need to buy $20 million of bonds. And I go, what's the rate? They're like, 191. I said, why would I want that crap for? Well, that's our policy. The regulators are going to come and be angry at us. I said, well, we can always change our policy. It's bad business. It doesn't make any sense. Why do we want that? And so lo and behold, we changed our policy. We didn't buy it. We talked about it every quarterly meeting saying, you know, until we change a policy that we're breaching our own policy by not having, by not having this stuff. But mind you, every month that went by, we're like, well, that's another month where it became devalued and we didn't have that risk at all. You know, even until today, we only have about $450,000 worth of held to maturity bonds on our balance sheet. Okay. If I was just a yes man in our conversation in that committee, Right. We would end up spending, you know, all this money and we would have gotten our rear ends handed to us. Right. The second thing that happened last year, I get a call from one of my favorite customers. She says that, you know, I really love your bank. And I'm like, thank you. We really love you as a customer. You know, what can I do for you? And she's like, well, I got ten million dollars sitting at another bank and I don't really need to have it there. I'd love to give it to you. And I say, so ship the ship the sugar. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> she says, well, we, it's, it's, it's held in trust. And the trust requires that I have insurance on those funds. So I said, look, you know, I honestly I don't know anything about that. She goes, No problem. I'll have my CFO send you the insurance company along with the information and get it done. I'll move the money to you. So I get the thing, finds out she was paying the other bank either 15 or 65 bips. I don't remember what I think might have been 65 bips for the right to have insurance on her money for 10 million dollars. And so I called the company, we find out what the program was, and lo and behold, last November, December. We took on this insurance and we offered it to all of our customers. It's unlimited, over the 250, it's unlimited. And we foot the bill, we don't charge our clients at all. So if you were a customer and you had $400,000 and you wanted to have insurance, okay? No mind you, we don't need insurance, but if you want insurance, you can have it. I'm paying for it. Then you, I just give you a form to sign. You sign the form and you have insurance. and That's the end <laughs> of it. So that was number two. And the last thing was, is we're at 40% liquidity, okay? We have $170 million of availability on a line of credit that's untapped till today. From quarter to quarter, our deposits went up like $40 million from, third quarter, from first quarter to second quarter. So better be lucky than smart. You know, it got, it, it got proven out.
2: Moshe, it's been a, a delight chatting to you and hearing the story firsthand. I think a lot of people listening would also be interested in, in learning more and sort of following that story as it progresses. If people want to find you online, uh, where's a good place for them to go to do that?
1: Look up the stock symbol is OPHC, Optimum Bank Holding Corp. Our website, user-friendly. Our app is user-friendly. One thing we have in our bank that other banks don't have is we'll open accounts uh, without having to be a person. So if you need any business or personal accounts, you send an email and somebody responds right away and we get you all set up. But our website has information. So that's OptimumBank.com. Again, the stock symbol PHC. the easiest thing to do since we're publicly traded, and we file, run the NASDAQ, we file everything timely. You could go there, search news, you know, Yahoo Finance or one of these places, or Ameritrade, and you should be able to get all of our filings, all the press. We sent out a press release today about our second quarter results, which were fantastic. Our June month was the best month we've ever, 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 ever had, and it's a run rate of a 19.7% return on equity okay okay it just it, it blows anyone's mind we Piper Sandler sent me an email that the my bank is on their all-star list top 35 banks in the country okay well, congratulations I mean I mean it's per capita we're a small bank sure. compared to you know you know Wells Fargo but I mean but it, it's it's a proud moment you know I I I I, I got into the business without knowing what I was doing. I was, you know, I had, I had I had other full-time jobs, you know, but I fell in love. I fell in love with the business. And today we're cranking, man. We're, we're, and we're doing it the right way. Everyone's happy. We have, we're, we have no marketing dollars spent. Zero. And, and every day of the week, we got people coming in with money that they want to deposit and people saying, I heard you have money to lend me <laughs> every day of the week.
2: Now it's you've you've put yourself in a great position there. Congratulations on those results, and yeah, best of luck for for the future. Before I let you go, I mean, you've already made a huge transformation at Optimum Bank. Is there anything that we should be looking out for? Anything coming next uh, on the horizon?
1: This next eighteen months, like I said in my in my my letter to the shareholders at the annual shareholder meeting, I think is really going to be the biggest transformation as far as products and growth. We should be able to raise $30 million in the next 18 months to get us to a billion-dollar bank. We should get finally get some research analysts and get some coverage of the stock, which we haven't had in the, – the bank's been open 24 years almost. So we should get that, which should, should, should make the stock pop at some point. But then you have all these verticals that we want to do. we gotta, we got to look at other banks to buy. Um, we're looking at different verticals to add to the holding company, like a fintech or even on a smaller side. You know, maybe a residential lender or um, an insurance agency, a title company. I mean, there's a, there are things. There are things that we, God willing, you know, we're, we're at the best we've ever been. So, God willing, we should be able to take that springboard with that and and kind of and kind of grow the holding company to have other assets that'll be income producing that'll help the company grow, and with the intention of taking all the all the excess surplus cash, putting it into the bank so to raise our lending limit and to grow the balance sheet of the bank.
2: Yeah, well, as you, as you say, you're a small bank. You weren't on my radar before, but I've really been inspired to to see what you do there. So I'll be one of the ones definitely following along online. So thank you again, Moshe, for for making the time to speak to me. I've had a fantastic time. And yeah, I wish you the best of luck for those uh, very bold ambitions of yours.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I can't wait to see how this uh, what this looks like and what our future looks like together.
2: And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn, where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.fc. How to Lend Money to Strangers.show or just www.htlmts.show and I'll see you again next Thursday.